What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Apartment 113 podcast, where we talk with cool folks in the cannabis and psychedelics industry to learn about their projects and celebrate their successes. My name is Rob Sanchez, and this is episode 28. We're joined today by the founders of Trade Roots, Jesse Pitts and Carl Junoni. Trade Roots is a full vertical cannabis business in Wareham, Massachusetts. Jesse and Carl talk with us today about the origin of the business and explain their approach to craft and community. Trade Roots is churning out high quality products at the entrance to Cape Cod. So make sure to stop by and check out the shop if you're in the area or visit traderoots.buzz for more information. And enjoy the show. Carl, Jesse, welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Things are uh, are heating up, you know. We're in Massachusetts, right? We're, we're located right at the gateway to Cape Cod in Wareham, Mass, which happens to be my hometown. So I'm blessed to be able to do this in my hometown, where um, where everybody knows me for for good or bad. But it, it is it is an honor. Yes. So you made a little bit of a uh, you made a few headlines in the hometown before starting Trade Roots. Uh, from the sound of it, should we should we dive into a little bit of that story? Sure, um, that's why we're here, right? Um, so yeah, you know, cannabis has always been really part of my life. It's always been there. Um, I don't remember life without it being there. Um, it was just always around, and it wasn't a big deal to me. It was one of those lesser, um, dangerous drugs, so to say, that were out there and about in in, in the world. And, you know, my freezer was full of it from my my father growing homegrown. And, you know, we always plays, played games of, you know, can I find my father's plants in the woods and, you know, bring a leaf back to him to, to get him all paranoid and freaked out. That was that was part of life for me growing up. Um, we didn't play oh, okay. cops and robbers. <laughs> we played drug dealers and cops. That was a thing. Um, so, so it was part of life early on, all the way Very through. early on as a childhood, you know. Whether it was meant to or not, it was just stuff that we saw and that we grew up around. So yeah, cannabis was not anything new to me by the time I got to high school or college. It was just always there. Right. And uh, by the time you get to high school, college is where the, uh, uh, some of the, the, business, the business options start to present themselves that can, that can cause trouble or you know, lead people uh, down different paths, man. I saw that you spent uh, nine months in prison for... Um, for cannabis in Massachusetts. Um, can you explain a little bit about that sentence or about that time uh, that you spent? Sure. Um, so after high school, you know, I dabbled a little bit in high school selling ounces here and there just to get some some free smoke, which is, I think, what a lot of people started off selling weed for. Yes, um, sir. <laughs> and I got to college. I studied astronomy and physics. I decided I'm not going to sell weed while I'm here. I have to focus. This is going to be tough. That didn't last very long. Um, it was like shooting fish in a barrel out there. I needed money for books, needed money to survive. So this was a natural revenue stream for me that I was already accustomed to. So inevitably, I started selling weed in the dorm and just providing for my friends in the dorm. And then that quickly turned into the living area that we were in, which was central at UMass Amherst. And then from there, it 
really spread out. You know, we, we jokingly called the operation hometown and I told everybody in my dorm to go find the dealer in their hometown and we're going to cut the numbers. And that's really when <laughs> things got real. Um, man, a businessman at heart right there. It went from one pound to, you know, 20 to 50 to a hundred pounds. And back then, you know, a, a pack was a pound, not a, not an eighth. So when I hear people saying, oh, we're moving packs, I'm like, oh, really? How many, how many pounds are you selling? And they're like, oh, like two. And I'm like, that's not packs. That's, you know. So the, the game <laughs> changed a long time since when I was doing it wholesale to what it is now, where a lot of these guys that are in the illicit market have to compete with legal companies. They have to brand. They have to market. They have to package similar to a legal company. They have to get test results like, like a normal company. And that, that game definitely changed as, as things developed. But Going back it's not to the, the arrest, it's not the um, Ziploc bag industry anymore. No, it's yeah, not even on the anymore. illicit side. Yeah, you know, and a little like a you know spring scale. Um, so yeah, the game changed, but really the it escalated for me after college, and I continued to to stay in the game, so to say. And I was out at UMass from between '99 and about 2005, and then I moved back to the Boston area. I was ended up I ended up getting arrested in Norton. Norton Mass with about 70 pounds of marijuana and about a quarter million dollars cash. Um, All right. So we're, it wasn't lightweight there. Yeah, no. Yeah. And, you know, when I was being, you know, when I was in court and the, the judge asked, like, I want to see his record. And the DA was like, well, I, I can't find one. He's like, you can't find her. He doesn't have one. I didn't have a record. It was the first time I really been arrested. So I they see. didn't really wow. know what to do with me. Um but it was a lot, so they had to take it very seriously. And in the end, I ended up getting a, a, you know, I had great lawyers and I ended up getting a misdemeanor plus, and it says right on it, misdemeanor plus over 50 pounds of marijuana, which was a felony. But when you negotiate down to a lesser sentence, they, you know, they will attach that there saying, hey, this was actually a serious crime, by the way. Right. Um, a little caveat, up- but coming in squeaky clean is a serious benefit there. So yes, I ended up settling 18 months. I did nine months inside, finished the rest on an ankle bracelet outside um, on parole, which was a lot better, but still very restricted. Um, Lost that quarter million dollars cash, that's for sure. And now we fast forward today, we are the only full vertical social equity company in Massachusetts because of that arrest. So it's been a a, a roller coaster of a ride to get to where we are today, but it's, it's a... It's a weird feeling knowing that I sat in a jail cell for nine months, and yet I have a license issued by the state today to do the very same thing I was doing then. It's it almost feels like an alternate timeline or like stepping into another um, a, another dimension there with the turnaround. I always say time is not linear. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. And before we get into kind of your thoughts there um, with trade routes and the the process there to form in uh, mass. Uh, Carl, how about how about your background with cannabis and and kind of entry into the industry? Sure. So I'll I'll be the the first to admit that up until 2017, I I thought this was an industry for criminals and children. Um, you know, great to college and you know high school and and all of that. And but right, um, but kind of hesitant to enter full full on or take it uh, seriously at that point. Well, I didn't realize it was an option. Um, and right, then right. A, a friend of mine, I, I worked in, uh, in finance and a friend of mine sent me a, a deck for a grow out in Oregon. And he had, he had, uh, helped a friend of mine with something else in the past. And so, um, I, I, I owed him to take a look at it 
And so I sent it off to a couple of guys to, take, to, to do due diligence for, for VC and, and PE firms. And, and I, I'm like, tell me, you know, tell me what's wrong with this so I can let this guy down easy. And they responded back, what's the minimum investment? And I think my email back was, shit, I have I got homework to do now. Um, wow, yeah. And so put a, put a small investment group together for a grow out in Oregon. Um, at the same time, maybe you could take the, the story from here. So yeah, um, I was I was still operating. You know, fast forward a little bit. I was I was out out. You know, free man at this time. No bracelet left. Uh, I had you know five years of probation that it, it exhausted, and I was like, all right, I'm gonna continue. Um, never allegedly never really stopped, but I'm gonna continue. And I, I started doing a lot of small batch craft stuff. I got really in, heavy into extractions. Went out to Colorado, took some courses out there with Havlick. Um, and just really took it to another level. And I started a little test kitchen, so to say, of like, hey, this is what I want to do. I, I want to do this legally, and I want to start a company, and this is going to be what we're going to do. This is a little mini model. And we had a couple outbuildings. We had um, my, I, I converted my old construction trailer into an extraction lab, and we were just, just running it. The lab and on wheels, man. We had a fire. At our at our cultivation facility, which was just a house, and <laughs> so my partner at the time thought it was a great idea to post some of these pictures online and say, "Hey, our cultivation facility caught on fire." And I'm like, "You realize we're doing this illegally, and you just put us all out there." And we ended up having a big blowout over it, and I was very upset. And you know, and then the phone rings, and it's Carl. He says, "The hell are you guys doing out there?" And next thing you know, Carl comes out to visit, and. We, uh, we just started talking and that led me to a mountain farm in Oregon of him showing me what that grow looks like there and asking me a million questions about potentially extraction, extracting on a farm in Oregon. You know, being a construction guy, him being a trader, we were typically the first two up on the farm besides the head grower, who, which was amazing. Um, and in the end, we just started talking and he's like, what do you think? And I was like, well, I, I think we need to move this mountain to Wareham. And he's like, what the hell is a Wareham? And I was like, that's my hometown. And gotta bring it home. I'm gonna huh? do this. Let's do it there. And I at, that's when I asked him on that mountain, I said, You wanna be my partner? He's like, Of what? <laughs> so you'll see. <laughs> it's a hypothetical partnership. You gotta agree <laughs> yes. first, right? <laughs> so then Was there know, always we, a drive we, to bring that back home? Um kind of what are the reasons for wanting to to centralize I think, there. I think fate, you know, and, and, and I think the universe just pushed us in directions and, and Carl can tell a little story about when he landed. And for me, the path was always clear. And it's just like, I'm going there no matter what, like, you know, lead, follow, get the hell out of the way. Like that was my mentality. Right. And, you know, Carl was that type of person that had the ability, you know, I, I knew what needed to be said. I just didn't know how to say it. And he would ask the right questions to pull it out of me to be like, this is what you mean. This is what craft cannabis actually is. This is what you know. I know because you told me, you know, like. He kind of fill in some gaps or yes. finish some sentences yes. there. And he makes the it easy. You just got to ask him. <laughs> you just got to know where to look, huh? know yeah. how to prompt it. Yeah, no, I can definitely relate to that uh, drive to wanting to go to, to bring the industry home as well. After seeing it in the West, um, I left Kansas for Colorado and cultivated and created hash there before going to Seattle. And now I'm in Vegas. Uh, so with the micro business license lottery just opening in Missouri, it's something I'm I'm digging into as well, looking to try to get my app submitted and try to get that opportunity to open up business there where I used to be trying to, you know, operate under the radar. 
I think uh, it kind of connects the dots and uh, feels good to do that business above the board um, and to be able to do you know something that I enjoyed right in the in the hometown. It helps being close to family and and friends and everything the else support, around being yeah, home. The support for sure. Yeah. And I I joked when we first got our transport van. I was like, I can't wait to put a hundred pounds to the back of this thing and drive it all over the state. <laughs> <laughs> Because I yeah. can, and you know, yes, officer, I have a hundred pounds in the back. Here's right. here's my manifest. Here's my man, my metric manifest and my yep. agent card. Yeah, have a good day. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been surreal, and you know, you, you're absolutely right to do it in the hometown, to do it in the home state, and you know, to do it with the support cast that we have has been amazing. And and the the hometown, the municipality of Wareham has been nothing but amazing to us, and and very supportive. Throughout the process, they refer to us as the local guys, and you know, oh, it's, nice. it, 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 it is a yeah. nice feel. Everywhere we go in town, how's business? How's the how's the store? How's everything going? It's it's the local business support too that that really you know makes it feel great. And did you start trying to work on that support um, really before the application was submitted, or how was that early application process for you guys? Yeah, so I mean, I actually started a medical marijuana company in New Bedford. It kind of fell apart. You know, we were uh, approached by a company out of Boston that was supposed to fund our company, and all of that basically, you know, just fell apart. And that company moved on to do their own thing. Um, and I was supposed to be part of it. As soon as I got their licenses, they let me go. They went on to be, you know, one of the largest companies in Massachusetts. I'm not going to say the names now, Carl, kind of if he wants. <laughs> but. <laughs> You I, can, like, you, I like having friends. You, you can find it if you look deep enough. Um, and when they let me go, I decided right then and there, I'm just going to go do this on my own. Uh, I have the blueprint. But adult use was really always the goal. So I just kind of kept my eye on adult use. As soon as those regulations rolled out, I was like, wait, my cannabis arrest is now a virtue. And I, I'm going to put this on. I want to put this on my resume rather than try to hide it. That's when I knew like, all right, I'm all in. And, you know, basically at that point, I was like, I'm pushing every chip I have on the table and all I'm asking is for someone to call me. And that was the goal. And Carl called me. He's crazy. <laughs> and, and here we are now, right? Right. Um, yep. How long was the how long was that waiting period to have the license approved and find the location and kind of get some of the logistics now worked out now that the idea is there? So for, for reference, we just celebrated our, our one-year anniversary in retail in February. And that week, I got my five-year anniversary. Congratulations for trade roots. And I was like, okay. So, you know, five years in, we, we celebrated our one-year anniversary. Hey, right. So it definitely took some time. It was a grind. Um, a grind. On, the, on the logistics and for the state itself. You said adult use wasn't, um, it wasn't was, there yet. It was the cart before the horse over and over. And I remember sitting there with Carl one day, we were eating lunch, we're like, what the hell, how are we gonna do this? And I, I looked at him, I just smiled. I was like, we just gotta teach the horse to push the goddamn cart. And <laughs> just accept that, it. that was it. After yeah. that, we're like, all right, no more excuses. Like, let's just, let's let's figure it out. Like, you know, woe is me right. is not the answer. Um, There's a stoic it. phrase that's uh, like, the obstacle is the way, you know? Yes. <laughs> if there's something in the way, just go, go, at it. go into it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yep. Nice. So, yeah, so it was also, you know, in the beginning, the CCC, to their credit, has done a lot to, to change, you know, the, the course to get licensed. You know, in the beginning, you had to secure the building. All right. Well, secure the building. Now you're paying rent for three years before you get your license. It's like, that's yes, that's what I was hearing about. Startup. It right, makes it right. makes it very difficult, makes it difficult to raise funds. 
um, you know, to, to pitch a deck of, you know, hey, we don't know. It's just, you know, uncertainty, uncertainty, uncertainty. But I promise it's going to work when we can. Um, right. It, We're going to pay this rent sell. indefinitely until then. Yep. Yeah. It's a tough sell. Right. And so that was actually remediated or changed so that now you can. They're, they're making were, were it easier. Were you able to submit so your license can, without a location? Yes. They're making it easier so that you don't have to show all this proof of these things and, and that, you know, you can get a letter saying, yes, we will work with this person. So they're making it a little bit easier than saying, I own the building or I already have a lease signed or there's stuff like that that they are working through the, uh, you know, the logistics of to make it easier to get licensed. But it's, it's one of those, you know, is it too little, too late? Yeah, you know, right. How many people the are actually applying there. for licenses these days? Um, not, not as much as they used to. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, do you have a, is it a micro-business license with, it's with cultivation, extraction, and retail, or is it retail only? So we actually got three separate licenses. We have a tier two cultivation. We have a manufacturing license, which is the extraction lab. And we have um, the retail license. Okay, so excellent. Yeah, the full Delivery license the full we're not gamut. using. So they're not, it's not a... Uh, micro license. There are three separate licenses. We actually applied as a regular applicant because social equity, you had to be and maintain 51% ownership of the company and to raise the amount of money that we needed to raise for a full vertical company. It didn't really make sense to try to hold that status and, and keep that 51%. Once they changed it in, in the second cohort to 10%, so well, we can do that. Um, right. And it we, becomes more we manageable. applied for it and we got accepted, but we already had our licenses. So it, it didn't do <laughs> us, it didn't give us any leg up or anything like that. But, you know, it definitely does in the end help out when it comes yeah. to negotiating contracts, when it comes to banking, when it comes to certain aspects of the industry. So, social equity does, there's all these hidden virtues in it that, you know, keep paying dividends today. Still not a quarter million worth, but I'm counting. Right, right. Hey, one step at a time, man. By the next, by the next time we have you on the podcast, we'll be there. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so, what kind of uh, what uh, what style of cultivation are you running in your uh, tier two facility? Soilless hydro um, soil. So we 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 grow we grow with cocoa. We use Athena nutrients, um, and we do a um, you know a, a harvest in each room every two you know every two weeks. We're taking down a harvest. So it's, it's a perpetual, nice. um, and it's, it's manageable, you know, it's Once only you about start 5, that 000. treadmill going, yes, you gotta, exactly. gotta keep it's only cleaning. 5,000, uh, square feet of canopy. We're pulling down about 200 pounds a month and wow, it's, okay. it's, it's manageable. I mean, everything we're doing right now has been hand trimmed and we are true to the craft. We don't want to automate where we're going to sacrifice craft and quality. Um, Beautiful, so, yeah. you know, it, it takes a little bit more work, a little more label, a little more overhead, but in the end. You know, you, we're standing by what we say, and, and that will hold the value, I think, in the end. Yeah, the machine trim may be faster. You might be able to churn out that volume, but you're losing so many of those trichome heads with that that delicious terpene and everything that you want to deliver. Uh, I think that, I mean, it's a necessary evil. I think it, with some, like, mass commoditization, it's good to know where your business stands on that level. I think it sounds like you guys are, are very much preaching... Um, kind of what you have on the site and with the branding and that on the craft side, right? Leaning towards that, that quality and, um, uh, excellence. That's, um, that's what I love to see in the cannabis industry. I know that, uh, it can often be tempting for businesses to try to race to the bottom there. 
and figure out what to find. And I think it's more valuable to attach a story to the product and really have something there that's, um, that's tangible so people know what they're buying and you know can appreciate it. I say anyone can race to the bottom. It's it's a lot more um, challenging and, and you know beneficial to race to the top. Yeah, yeah. There's a um, there's a book on cannabis data science. I, the name escapes me. I'll throw it in the show notes. But it, he he talks about the market segmenting eventually to a barbell distribution, uh, where there's going to be like a high end kind of sewership side, and then your kind of utility, um, you know, lower shelf product and how many markets sort of started with this shotgun approach of people just everywhere and kind of a flat distribution. Uh, Do you think that the Massachusetts market has already made that split or started making that cross? Yeah, we're we're seeing the bifurcation now, you know, between craft commercial sort of say, um, and I'm trying to bring that word back. Um, It's definitely definitely (laughs) happening and and we are seeing that split, that divide. Um, So yeah, it's, it's going to happen. I think it's happening faster in mass than it did in, in other markets where that is the case just about with everything in cannabis. It's just happening a lot faster. It's the same path. It's just happening faster. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, when you started cultivating or when you started the facility uh, with those three licenses, did you start one before the other or was it, was it an effort to kind of put all three poles up at the same time? Well, it, I guess it depends on where the timeline was, because um, those things changed along the course of, of, of us launching. Uh, we, we ended up deciding to, to launch our, our manufacturing and our, our cultivation first. And that was um, big because of revenue streams. And we realized that, you know, if we open the lab, we can start producing revenue right away. And, you know, we could do toll processing, we could do um, extractions where, you know, we buy pro- we buy feed and then we extract it and then fill carts and we sell it in the wholesale market. So we were looking to, to get into the market as soon as possible. So the, 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 the toll processing and the extractions definitely was our first step. And we knew cultivation was going to be a ramp up. So we really went at those two first at the same time, knowing cultivation would be coming in afterwards because it takes longer to ramp up. Um, the retail was one of those ones where it was just like, all right, we were we were dancing around when to open that. And, you know, it was a big cash push to, to get it open because you need to get the inventory. You need to get everything in place to open that retail. Um, and and the, the manufacturing lab gave us the opportunity to produce a lot of that product that we launched with, working with, um, you know, great partners like High Plains Farms that really gave us a good push early on, the big outdoor farm in Western Mass. That it, it, it worked for both companies where we kind of combined together. We sold a lot of their product in our store. We also sold a lot of our co-branded product in our store. And that's really, that helped us launch. Um, so really the retail was the last to come online. And, okay, I see. And the last for us to staff. Kind of needed that, uh, the earlier steps in the supply chain before could, the retail could be justified by itself, huh? Yes. Yeah, yep. And um, I imagine that uh, that first harvest has got to feel uh, so sweet pulling that down from the facility. Yes, uh, but it's also the first <laughs> harvest is the first pancake. So, <laughs> you know, it's like, great, go, right? that's awesome the learning experience. great environment. Does it work? And, you know, it takes, you know, they say 12 to 18 months to dial in that environment to get it right where you want it. And, yeah, you learn that the hard way. And your investors automatically assume like we got a harvest, like everything's great. It's like, yeah, we're lucky we have a lab. 
Um, it needs and, to be fine-tuned you know, still, right? It needs to be fine-tuned, and, and you know, passing micro and micro and mass is not the easiest game. So, yeah, it took it took us a minute to dial that in. Once we did, we we really did, and, and I think we started to hit our stride. We're getting known for our, our flower as much as we are for our, our, uh, our, our extractions now, which is right where we want to be. And we, we, we built a pretty good name for ourselves in the lab, and it took us a little while for the, for the cultivation to catch up, but I think we're, we're there now. Hey, great. It's a, yeah, it's good to be able to compete on all those fronts or um, have something maybe for a consumer from different mindsets or with a different intention, you know? Yeah, and, and for us, you know, a craft concentrate starts with a craft flower. I mean, you can't fake that. Quality in, quality out there, man. Yeah, yep. there's obviously you can make concentrates out of non-quality flour. And, Called TRC. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> I was going to dance around it. <laughs> It's very prevalent in, in in the Vegas industry and in, in some other industries across the states, for sure. I could see marketing pushing towards non-CR seed, you know, just like hand-trimmed flour, non-CR seed concentrates. Um, yeah, you know, and, and seeing some sol- some push for solventless as well. Have you guys dabbled in, in the solventless side of the fence? So it's always been in the discussion. And if we are going to expand our lab, this is the, the exact direction we're going to go in. I always kept saying Massachusetts market's not there yet. Mass market's not there yet. They're not growing cultivars to be produced to, to produce hash. Don't and really that, have that, that yield is, is, you know, that that's what makes the difference there. Great. You Very can make great so. quality hash out of a lot of different flowers. Is it worth washing though is the question. Um, and you know, now people are starting to pay attention and starting to cultivate for, you know, producing hash. So it, the game is changing in mass, like I said, and fast. So. Right. Yes. It's kind of a matter of finding the right cultivars or having the right yields to, uh, to make that product worth it too, from a, like the big picture perspective. Yeah. From a commercial standpoint, you know, it's like, you know, it doesn't make sense to actually do this or not. You know, if you can make that into a live resin, you get twice the yield. Why not do that? Or if, you know, you can sell it as a flower, why not do that? So yeah, it's, right. you know, you know, product, you know, a lot of early on, there was a lot of, a lot of the extractions in mass were, were mistakes. It was like, oh, this didn't work out. Freeze it. Uh, it didn't work out. Yep. Freeze it. Yeah, and, that's and now often people the, are like, wow, B. this looks really great. Let's freeze half a table. And that's, you know, now, all right, now we're growing to extract. Where in the beginning, fresh nobody was. So we're getting right. there. It's kind of a matter of the consumer education as well. You know, like early on in any market, the cons- people aren't banging down the door asking for concentrates with, a, you know, a knowledge of the difference between an you know, a live or cured resin or asking for diamonds, it's kind of one step at a time in that, um, in that regard. And some of the, the old classics are still, I think the, some of the best sellers, but maybe you guys could speak to that. And with just pre-rolls and, you know, flower driving a lot of business and, and you know, maintaining a foothold. Yeah. And we see even with the old strains, like a headband or a train rack, you know, like these guys, I saw are you guys had a star dog. Like, hey, a name I know. And it's like, it is still really good. So, it, yes. yeah, I mean, there's definitely, you know, there's there's the old school, you know, consumer. There, there's new, newer people coming in. But I think the 80-20 rule is still there with just as it is in every market, you know, and, and 20% of the consumer consumes 80% of the product. Um, not, not that you should yep. placate to one or the other, but you should have something for everybody is the way I look at it. Right, right. I imagine the the menu creation process or kind of choosing your cultivars for trade routes was a was a fun a fun process or was it was it kind of stressful to have you know select things at it from every angle? 
So we're, we're fortunate in-house that we have a lot of very passionate growers. And like I said, I mean, I'm not like, I, I, I honestly get mistaken as a head grower all the time, like a master grower. I'm like, I'm not a master grower. Like, well, you're a master tractor. I'm like, I'm not a master tractor. <laughs> you know, like I've never said I was any of these things. You guys keep saying it. It's just not true. I like to connect dots and I, we, we hire smart people so they can tell us what to do. Not so that we can tell them what to do. And that, that goes for cultivation as well. I mean, 90% of the strains we have in there, I did not bring in there. I had no say in it. Um, kind of came in with the team, them. with the experience. Came with the team. It, you know, a lot of them are, you know, breeders themselves. And they have cuts and they have this. And they're like, can we do this? Can we do that? And I, we allow them to pheno hunt. Um, we do small batch pheno hunting in there. And it changes the profiles constantly. Uh, we just did one for the summer. It was all fruits. You know, we had like a strawberry bonnet, a peach hash plant, a raspberry hash plant. So we, we did that for summer. Now we're doing a whole sativa pheno hunt, you know, because everybody keeps asking for sativas. So we're, we're, we're trying to keep it moving and change it up and, and, you know, keep people guessing, but also keep that, that demand going for those strains too. It's just like, if you constantly have a strain, then it's like, yeah, cool. Like, I know I can always have that. What, what do you have that's different and new? You know, but if it's like, well, it's here and now it's gone and now it might be back in two months, get it while it's here, you know, is, and it's, it's that supply demand that we're really trying to, to lean into. And we do, I think we're growing with a, with 5,000 square feet. I think we have like 25 strains going and that's, it's a lot, but it's, it's manageable and right. you know, it's, it, it keeps everybody guessing and it gets the variety out there. Um, if those strains don't make the cut, so to say, and you know, we'll grow them once and that's it. And then they're gone, See um, which, which yeah. also creates that, you know, Hey, this is whenever growing this again, it's like, shit, I better Dude. get a volunteer. Yeah. Cause even so. if it didn't make the cut guarantee, there's a consumer who's like, Oh man, exactly. I've been looking for that strain forever. <laughs> yep. You want your 14 yeah, so, percenter? Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> hey, some, there's some good strains at the lower profile. Uh, at least there used to be kind of some good terpene profiles or aromatic stuff. I keep but saying it's definitely not years, driving we're going to be looking in three years, we're going to be looking for those strains again because everybody called them, and that's what people are going to want. And we're going to go yeah, backwards trying to find those strains. They got pushed out, and with yep. all the, the 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 pressure for high THC, which I definitely understand there, but it's it's kind of that again that one step at a time consumer approach. Um, first, they're after the THC, then it's that entourage effect that they can start appreciating or you know start looking for in the shop. I see a lot of um, struggle between marketing and education, where. People were like, well, if I just put this on there, it'll sell better. It's like, great. And you just misled a lot of goddamn people. Like, yeah. what are we doing? Um, right. And, you know, like in the product those, descriptions. Sometimes those very same pre- people are preaching about education. It's like, which one is it? Yeah. Where do you think that, where do you think that falls? Because uh, I've, I've talked with a few different guests about this. And it's weird because the community and the industry kind of puts the pressure on, on bud tenders of all people to educate the consumer. And it feels like, you know, the pressure's there because the bud tender's right at the line. But it's very, it's a lot of pressure to put maybe on a bud tender that's performing their job and, you know, running the business to also educate these guys coming in. Uh, Kind of where do you see that education happening, ideally? Yeah, I I agree with you. I think the bud tender is that front line to that education. And I, I think that's why it's important to have you know, a team out there that actually understands the plant is passionate about the plant and, you know, honestly can give quality recommendations based on their own experiences. And, and I think that's right. always what we tell our, our, our bud tenders is, 
you know, we're not here for medical advice. We're not, you know, but yes, I do want you to tell them what works for you. I do want them to tell you, you know, what your experiences are because that's what they want to hear. Um, and, and, you know, what you hear from other people's experiences too. And, yeah, you know, that, that ability to communicate that to them, I think is, is, is a huge skill and, and, it, and is often overlooked, you know, for the, for the quality of, of that person at the front. And everybody's just like, oh, they're just, they're just selling the weed for you. It's like, that's where your brand lives. Your brand lives out there. So that's, right, that's something customer that I, I think impression is, a, a, is right there, huh? a misstep by a lot of companies that, oh, you just need a body out there. It's like, no, you need the right body out there. Yeah, that's a good perspective. I think it's kind of like, a, you know, saying you're going to watch, you're going to watch a movie versus saying you're going to watch a horror movie or a action film or a comedy. It starts, that's like a much different night, um, a different vibe all around. And if you just ask for a movie and someone delivers, I mean, there's, there's an experience still, but there's a definitely an appreciation when you start to know what kinds, like what genres to dive into, like fruitier strains or headier highs and things like that, that I think, um, I'm excited for the market to catch up to, for consumers to dive into more. Um, have, have you guys experimented with any product reviews, uh, or getting consumer feedback with any products on the retail side? Um, we have our, our reviews just through online. Um, and you okay, know, we, cool. we monitor those like, like crazy people, um, because we want to know <laughs> how good watching to and, see. And, it, and if somebody's not happy, we want to we know why and we want to fix it. You know, that's not, that's not what we want to be known for. And you know, we're going to make mistakes. Everybody's going to make mistakes. It's, you know, how you, how you act and how you own them and, and respond to them. I think that w that's what defines you. Um, and, and if you're just like, oh, whatever, that guy's just that, you know, who cares? He's just a complainer, which sometimes is my attitude. And Carl's like, Jesse, calm down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Come off the ledge a little bit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, it, but it's true. You know, these, these people deserve, you know, to be heard as well. And, and when they are heard, they appreciate it. And all of a sudden, now all of a sudden their attitude and their view of you is just completely flip-flopped. And, you know, to, to pay attention to those things as a small company, it's feasible as a large company. I can't even imagine. Um, just and, churning. Yeah. You're just yeah. a number at that point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I definitely like the, I definitely like that approach, man. As a, as a regular consumer, I, I really look for a bud tender or a dispensary to try and, you know, build that experience because, I'll be back. I know I'll be back basically weekly, every other week, you know, from here until infinity. If, if the conversation's good or if, if everything's, you know, clear across the board. So I think that's um, really important to pay attention to that experience um, throughout. Have, have you found any programs to help, um, like help support um, the store more or help like tap into consumers at all? Um, I mean, there are obviously software programs that, that help you understand your customer better. And, you know, there are some that help you reach out to the customer, which I'm not sold on yet. Um, but as I'm far hitting as, up their text messages every day. Yeah. You know, but as far as, you know, feedback from the customers or, you know, it, it, it makes it tough. It's really just listening to them on the floor. And that's one of my favorite things to do is just go on the floor and not tell anybody who I am and just stand there and act like I'm regular oh, employee. Man. I can't really imagine how, anyway. how that feels. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it is nice to sit there and talk to people. And then, you know, I'll sit there, have a conversation like, Oh, what do you do here? And I tell them, well, I'm one of the co-founders. Like they're blown away that I'm taking the time to sit there and talk to them. And to me, I'm like, that's awesome. this is the, my favorite part of my job is talking to people like you. So <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we need to hear that information. It's like everybody, you know, if, 
you look at a spreadsheet, it's not going to tell you the, the truth. You know, it's going to it's going to show you a, a snapshot of what's going on. But listening to your customers, listening to your employees too, um, you know, because that's really where your brand is going to live. It's you know, your brand is what your employees say when they go home at the end of the day, what they right. tell their friends and family about what Trade Roots is, and if they're going home and running their mouth about how terrible their job is and how their their bosses don't take care of them, they don't care about them, they don't listen. That's your brand. And if they go home and they're like, my job is the best and, you know, I get this and they take care of me here. And they, this is what they do for me. And I don't, I'm not micromanaged and I feel like I have respect. That's your brand. And, and you know, that can be the very same company just doing different, th- doing things differently. Right. Right. Have you, uh, have you enjoyed stepping into that, uh, into that role as, as co-founder and, you know, leading, leading the team? Has it been, uh, a struggle to learn and expand or has it been you know just kind of forced forced on you that you've you've taken it and 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 you're confident with it now i guess how was that learning experience i'll send you a picture of what he looked like for, we got the before and after beard. <laughs> that was all dark those bags it was not the, he was a young handsome man 20 years ago all clean cut <laughs> um but no, I, you know, I, I joked earlier, like lead, follow, get the hell out of the way. You know, that's just how I've, I've always approached things. And, and, you know, lead by example is, is the way to do it. And never ask anybody to do something you won't do yourself. And th- those, those are the principles that I, I will die by. And, you know, I see other people do it differently and it, it, and it doesn't, doesn't typically play out. And, and to me, I, I'm the type of guy I love being in the trenches. You know, I've done every job there is in that building. And, you know, have no fear of doing it again. But again, you know, that's not where I have to step back and say, where am I best used in this company? And it's not trimming. Right. Definitely part of leadership is delegation. But um, having done that work and knowing the perspective is so valuable. I think everyone listening and anyone not listening has been part of organizations where leadership is oddly disconnected, you know, making decisions that don't quite match the day to day. So I think that... um, that approach is is perfect, and I think we you know, definitely need more of that in the space. Uh, what's next for Trade Roots this year? What what kind of events or um, uh, maybe plans might be in the pipeline? Is there anything that you guys have on the map that uh, we should let listeners know about who may be in the area? So we are looking at potentially towards the end of the summer doing a, uh, a Trade Roots craft fair. And the goal here is to bring in all craft, whether it's artwork, whether it's woodworking, okay. whether nice. it's, you know, I don't care. If it's a craft, it's welcome. Um, cannabis, welcome. Um, you know, and, you know, this to me is 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 the staple of what we've tried to do. And, and you know, it's part of our mission statement and we haven't wavered from it yet. And I think that understanding what craft is and, and, and normalizing craft into a community is, is a goal for us and, and being part of a community, just not just, oh, this, the cannabis guys. It's like, nope, that's just another business in the community that helps with the community. And that, that is something that we want to foster and we want to bring to the table. And, and to answer you, you asked the question before, is, was there work that we did before to, you know, to win over the town? I mean, we've been doing town cleanups since before Trade Roots existed. Um, cleaning beaches, doing roadside cleanups and, Hmm. You know, so just really getting started and helping out where you can roofing the little league field dugouts. No one asked us, but we showed up there one day. I was like, this place is a mess. 
Um, and it was those little things that eventually got, you know, people paying attention to me like, wait, these guys are trying to help and they do want to help and they haven't even asked for anything yet. And, and, and that's, that's typically what we've done to date. And, and, you know, I remember, you know, a lot of this stuff during, during the startup and everything was like, man, we got to do this cleanup, we got to do that cleanup. And I'm like, man, this is just like, this is killing us. And, and Kyle reminded me, he's like, but we're, you know, we're doing what we said we were going to do. I'm like, shit, you're right. You know, we got to do what we said we were going to do. We, you know, so there are those aspects because, it is, you know, you can get caught up so fast. Um, but, you know, the community is the, that's what got us here. That's what propped us up. And it was what made us able to be able to do this. So, yeah, we, we still owe it back to them and we are committed to them. And like I said, it makes it so much easier. That's my hometown because I played on those little league fields. So, you know, I, yeah, I know I what the town imagine. needs. I know what it doesn't need. And, and to be able to appropriate funds our way to where they belong is, is, is awesome. Yeah. And be able to have a hand there in that community development, you know, that, that shaped you or that, you know, you spent your life, life within, I can definitely respect that angle. And I, I think that's a, a part of the cannabis industry that's so unique across all of the industries because there's this localized state kind of containers of, of markets where it can't necessarily be crossed in with the bigger players from more legacy states or, you know, MSOs that are coming in and, and kind of making a sweep too. I think it's definitely going to be a pressure, but it's it's craft brands like like yours and like Trade Roots, I think that are going to stand that uh, that test of time, you know, as the um, consumers educate, as we're explaining, and uh, laws change. What What's your estimate on federalization? What, what year are you calling? I'm going to, I'll pull this post up, well, you know, again, when they announce the news and be like, Jesse called it back in. Before I let Carl get into this, because he's going to call <laughs> it. Um, one, one more thing on craft. You know, we really look at it very similar to, to, to the beer industry, you know, especially in New England. You know, we are, we are craft snobs here and, you know, we want quality and we, we are willing to pay for it. And, you know, for us, I look at the craft beer industry is, is very, there's a lot of parallels with craft beer and craft cannabis. And if you look at the numbers between craft beer you know, it, craft beer only makes up, what, 16% of the volume of beer produced. But the revenue generated by it is 32% of the volume of ge- revenue generated by beer. That's double. Yeah, so, wow. Speaks for right itself then, Right there. then and there, all of a sudden, I'm like, all right, that's the, that's the model. And, you know, you see the opposite side of things. It was just like, all right, you know, you have Imbev, you know, core, you have all these big beer companies being like, shit. And instead of going and producing a Budweiser IPA, they go by Goose Island or they go by Lagunitas or they go and they don't change the name. They don't change the recipe. They don't change anything. And they basically keep it going as if somebody's buying a craft beer that's not from the big beer companies. And you see that very parallel happening in cannabis right now. So that's I I see that happening and playing out, you know, on a larger scale here across literally across the country. Yeah, yeah, it's um it's a, a lesson in kind of commodification. I think everyone's, everyone's going through it's, and it's so accelerated too with, with cannabis, very yeah. unique to be witnessing in the whole thing. And I think looking back, it'll be like, wow, like when is the next cash crop just going to be invented that we're going to have to go through state legislation over like a 20 year period, man, <laughs> maybe, maybe never, or with mushrooms and other things coming around the corner, perhaps then. <laughs> I think mushrooms already had the way paved for them. <laughs> yeah, for real. For real. There's been some fighters already. Um, but go back to the question on 
federal legalization. I think Carl's way more equipped to handle this. He's in a lot more discussions on it. He's looking at All me right. like he wants to kill me for saying that. <laughs> um, so I think there's a couple of things, right? So like, so there's a couple. So there's, I mean, there's the Jefferson Packinghouse case, right? Like that's, that's sort of interesting. So I mean that like in like interstate neighboring state commerce um, is a thing that, I mean, as prob- I mean, could be by the end of the year. Um, there's the Boy Schiller lawsuit that Ascend and that group put together that's basically making the same cases they did with DraftKings and, and a whole bunch of others that because, so effectively the case, and, and I'm not a lawyer, but um, so the idea is this, that that if there is a legal regulated state market, the Controlled Substances Act doesn't apply because it's legal, because of the Tenth Amendment, just the government doesn't, the federal government doesn't have purview. So therefore, cannabis is still Schedule One, just not in Massachusetts and the 20, whatever, 40, whatever other states that have legal markets. So, you know, one of the things that's interesting, so, I mean, and I read something in a, a couple of days ago saying that the SAFE Act could pass if it was just safe banking, but not with expungement and all of this other stuff. That, you know, that's sort of like the, the Republican hold up and all of it. But it also means that safe banking won't pass unless there's all of this other stuff. Kind well, of all these other trappings have to come along with it at, at this point. Right. And social equity is a big piece of that with expungement and all of it. And social equity in its current form can't exist if the federal government has purview. I mean, some of the things that we have to do as a business that we have to report and questions we have to ask and all sorts of things wouldn't jibe federally, right? Like, so so one way sort of work around with everything where it could, this could sort of work is if a Southern state, and I'm saying Southern, not that that's, maybe I shouldn't say that. If there are states that don't want, you know, the devil's lettuce, okay, they don't have to have it. And the states that want to have a legal market, they can. And for business, for operators, we get to keep our high walls and, all of that stuff. And and so, you know, this sort of, this kind of makes sense for, and the federal government could punt it and not have to do anything. But I mean, you know, a schedule two or a schedule three would be from what I'm reading, pretty fucking disastrous for, for business. So for existing operators, just kind of, it would just be like floodgates at, at that point. And just regulatory creep. And I mean, and all of that stuff. And, and, you uh, know, I, I just, right. just, you know, I just sort of take a look and that. it's like, like, I forget the name of the brand because I don't I don't watch TV. But there was some some uh, Sierra Mist, I think the the the, the Coca Cola or PepsiCo brand just rebranded, and at the Super Bowl or one of these sporting events, just dumped all of these ads, and this brand just showed up. And it's like I sort of take a look at, especially for like edibles and and some of the, and some of these drinks. I sort of take a look, and it's like when federal legalization happens, like okay, just dump. X number of million dollars on each market, use an existing thing. And yeah, there's all of these, you know, great tasting brands of little cannabis peanut butter cups. Okay, wait till Reese's does it. Or right. whoever, you know, so like. Uh, yes, it starts to yeah. become a different uh, a different thought there entirely when infused that, products or CPGs. That very crafty to me. <laughs> no, no, not at all. We're moving into the assembly lines, aren't we? Yeah. To, the, to the manufacturing realm. Yeah, that's. And, and well, maybe that could be a necessary evil to make better craft cannabis in the end. And if it, if it lessens the restrictions there or allows a more vineyard type experience with craft cannabis, I think 
maybe there's some silver lining, but I feel like I have to stretch for it <laughs> a little bit. I could, I could see that. And I think that, you know, things would have to play out just right. And usually I don't trust that. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's why we'll, uh, we'll be here now, right. Embrace the present and kind of the, the current landscape and, and uh, tackle those things as, the, as they come. Right. <laughs> any, any podcast that invokes Ramdas, I'm, uh, I'm glad, I'm glad that we're on, man. <laughs> hey, yeah, definitely, man. I found a lot of solace in that, in that book from him, uh, on a on a funky trip many years ago. <laughs> I have I have polishing the mirror on my bookcase right over there. <laughs> oh, excellent! Yeah, dude, it's definitely um, always on my mind, right? Trying to trying to maintain that awareness. Easier said than done, of course. <laughs> Much. <laughs> well, guys, th- I want to thank you for the conversation today. It's been it's been really good getting to know you both and hearing some about the origins of trade routes. I definitely need to get out to Massachusetts and and try some of these products here soon. Um, where can our listeners find more about trade routes or tune into you on social media? Sure. Our, our website's uh, traderoots.buzz.buzz. It's traderoots, T-R-A-D-E-R-O-O-T-S. Um, and Instagram, T-R-A-D-E-R-O-O-T-S underscore buzz. Um, yeah, that's... Hey, we'll stop excellent. by the store, 6th Thatcher Lane and Wareham. And, <laughs> Get over and there, so, guys. Real, real funny, real funny, quick story. So, um, where I thought, so I, I was 44 years old when I learned, so, uh, that, that Michigan is east of the Mississippi. Um, we were on the phone, we were on a phone call with, with a, a gentleman who has a store in, in, in Massachusetts. And I, so our, our retail store actually has a window looking into a grow room. And I made the bold statement that we're, I knew there was some in Colorado and some out in California. That's awesome. Like, we're the I only store, you know, east of the Mississippi. And he's like, I, you know, I actually built one in Michigan. And that's when I realized I didn't know <laughs> <laughs> Michigan was east of the Mississippi. So, hey, it's still a very, very awesome feature for those who are in the industry or outside of it, man. Being able to, to get a glimpse into the cultivation facility in action is uh it's something else, man. It's like uh, it's like looking in at the at an exhibit or you know seeing behind the scenes. We wanted to create a destination, not a convenience store. I'll have to just go there and reminisce about my days sitting among the ladies, doing some <laughs> lollipop trimming, <laughs> sitting on a five-gallon bucket, hoping it I won't break it today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well thank you guys time, for hopping man. on. This has been fun. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Apartment 113 podcast. For more information about the show, along with our services and courses, visit apt113.com. We offer cannabis software product management, cannabis education courses, and freelance writing. With over a decade of experience in the cannabis industry, Apartment 113 is here to help.